0: Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. This morning we'll be looking at Matthew 13:53 through 58. And we're going to also be bringing in Luke 4 to give us a fuller picture of this narrative. So if you'll kind of have something in there so you can flip back and forth easily, that'll be helpful and serve you. But last week we finished the third of Jesus' five discourses or teaching blocks in the book of Matthew. The parabolic discourse. And although Matthew's gospel is admittedly not alliterated, um, it is extremely organized and very well structured. After each discourse, we see the same language used to show that Matthew's moving from a teaching block to a narrative section. And often that narrative section itself illustrates some of the very truths that you find in the sermons so Jesus' teaching sections. So in in 7.28, we saw when Jesus had finished these words. In eleven one we saw when Jesus had finished these instructions. So after the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus had finished these words. In the Missionary Discourse, when he had finished these instructions to the Twelve. And this morning, we get another one of these transition statements into the first narrative of this new section that will go for a long time, all the way down to chapter 18. But... Matthew thirteen fifty three through 58. When Jesus had finished these now parables, he departed from there. And he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were amazed. And they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. This morning we're going to take a a look at the context of this section, a challenge from the Nazarenes, a conflict with Jesus' own people, and the conclusion there at the end. So beginning with the context, in order to understand what's going on here, it's helpful to consider the context. Because as I mentioned earlier, Matthew tends to move from teaching blocks to narrative sections that illustrate some of the very truths that he presented in the teaching block. So let's consider first the literary context and then the context of the story. So in this literary context, how it fits in the book of Matthew, when Jesus had finished these parables, we've got to keep that in mind. The kingdom parables as a whole first, remember, that the parabolic discourse has a, lo- a logical and chronological flow to it that we've pointed to several times, haven't we? And I'm not going to go through all of it again, but some of the main ideas is that Jesus will establish his kingdom and it will grow and it will expand and it will change the world. We can get excited about that every time we talk about it, can't we? That's the first thing. And within this kingdom, though, there will be imposters, unbelievers during the Jewish age and even in the church age. Jesus is would patiently allow, the third point I want to remind us of is that he would patiently allow the false to grow up alongside the genuine. But judgment is coming. It's coming on the Jews in 70 AD and it's coming on the entire unbelieving world at the final judgment. Then after the last of the kingdom parables we also have the last parable in the discourse and that parable stands out from the rest because it doesn't tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like like all the other parables. It instead tells us what a scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom is like. So therefore, he told them in 1352, since you understand the kingdom of heaven, you're putting together all these parables and kind of getting an understanding. Every scribe who's become a disciple of the kingdom, referring to them as these new scribes of the kingdom because they've been putting together the truths of the kingdom, is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old Heads of household are responsible to God to carry out their duties for the good of those under their care. And Jesus is telling these disciples that if they actually understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, then they are like oike despotes, householders, house leaders. They're like that. And such disciples, if they understand the mysteries of the kingdom, they should feel the weight of that responsibility, that they understand and the rest of the world needs understanding. So they're responsible to help them gain that understanding. But who are those for whom we are responsible? Are they these disciples? And for that, we need to look back to the narrative right before the parabolic discourse because this matters too. Right before he began the parabolic discourse, in a sense, our narrative this morning picks up right where the last section of narrative left off. Turn back to Matthew 12, 46-50. Right before he goes into all this, he's speaking to the crowds. And behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Remember this? And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching out his hand... Toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Those are the ones that are truly my family that I have a special responsibility for. They're part of my household in a way that blood relation can't be. Those who are household members are not blood relations. They are not those who are of your same ethnicity. God forbid we look at it that way, right? Ta ethnos, right? Every nation and or from your own hometown. It is those who do the will of the Father. That's who your true household members are. Now having set the literary context, let's move to some important contextual aspects. First of the story itself. He departed from there and came to his hometown where did he come came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so first in verse 53 he departed from there when we read that he departed from there we are poor stewards of the word of god if we don't ask what departed from where We've got to know that because that matters. In Bible interpretation, you've got to understand what's going on. He departed from there. We've got to define that. And Jesus had been ministering in and around Capernaum for about a year using it as his home base. He had left his true hometown and he's been in Capernaum, centering his activity there. It became such a base of operations for him that Matthew refers to it as his own city in Matthew 9, 1. And in Mark 2, Mark 2 calls Capernaum the comfortable name, Home. However, over time, Jesus certainly wore out his welcome in Capernaum, didn't he? They didn't repent. They lost interest in his ministry and many even outright opposed Jesus to the point of conspiring for his death. Yeah, that's kind of rejection, right? Uh, So, As we've seen, due to that rejection, Jesus stopped teaching the law in their synagogues and he began teaching them in parables in the open air only. He's no longer teaching the law in the synagogues. And he only taught in parables so that while hearing they would not hear nor understand. Matthew thirteen, thirteen. Because the Lord had spent more time there than anywhere else thus far in his ministry, Capernaum was especially guilty for rejecting him as it, and Jesus had already scorchingly rebuked him. If you remember back in Matthew eleven, twenty three through twenty four, he says, You Capernaum, you won't be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll descend into hell. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So now Jesus departs from Capernaum because that city has sealed its doom by rejecting Jesus. Jesus is modeling for you exactly what he told the disciples to do. Remember in Matthew 10 in the in the uh, missionary discourse where he says in 14 through 15, Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that city or house, shake the dust from your feet. House also is oikos. Sound familiar? And city, hometown. Go out from that house and shake the dust from your feet, truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for you. He's saying, Capernaum, you've done, con- you've done condemned yourself now. And when Jews re-entered Israel after a trip to a pagan culture, they would, all, they would dust their shoes off because they didn't even want to defile Israel with the pagan Gentile dust. Even though these cities are Jewish cities, they're not Jesus' people. That's what he's saying. You're of my same blood lineage, but you don't do the will of the Father, so you're not our people. You're worse than Sodom, king of the, of the Gentile nations, right? The epitome of not God's people. And he treats them like that. Jesus has no, no further responsibility toward them because they're not part of his household. So Jesus never went to Capernaum again except for just to pass through and minister elsewhere. So he, if he had to walk through, he walked through. He didn't do anything else there. Capernaum's opportunity had passed. So where does Jesus go? He left there, Capernaum, and he went to his hometown, verse 54, and began teaching them in his synagogue. Once again, we can't just read over hometown without identifying where that is, can we? He refers to Nazareth where Joseph and Mary went to raise Jesus after returning from Egypt in 2.23, where Jesus returned to Nazareth after his baptism and temptations in 4.12-13. through In Luke's more detailed account of the story, in Luke 4.26, he tells us explicitly that this is Nazareth. Now some say that Luke's story is an earlier visit. It's not the same visit. It's not a parallel passage. Some expositors say that. But that seems unlikely because the stories are really, really similar when you lay them side by side. Did did almost exactly the same thing happen in Nazareth twice? That doesn't really make sense. And later we will talk about what Luke tells us happened at the end of the narrative. And it seems beyond unlikely that Jesus is going to go back there uh, and try again after the kind of rejection that we're going to see that he experienced in Luke 4. So Jesus leaves Capernaum, where he has centered his ministry for the past year, where he has performed so many miracles that so many that sickness, disease, and demonic possession is nearly vanquished from the area, and where he's grown to be famous. Matthew 9, 26 and 9.31, that news spread about to all the cities and all the lands of Israel. He was so famous, we'll see in our next sermon in Matthew, that Herod the Tetrarch is hearing about him. So you've got the guy that's the, the king over the whole place, and he's hearing about Jesus. That's kind of a big deal. Joe Biden knows about him, you know, the, he knows who he is, he knows what's going on. So this local boy made good goes back to his hometown. And you can kind of see how this. there might be a bit of jealousy that could lead to a problem here, can't you? Oh, you left Nazareth. You go to Capernaum. That becomes your home city. That's where you do all the healing. That's where there's no sickness. That's where all the disease is gone. You've healed all these, all these demonic deliverances. And now you're going to come back here and come to us. Spoiler alert, it does cause problems. But once in Nazareth, where does he go? Well, he's no longer going to teach only in parables. He's going to go back to the synagogue. He, these people haven't rejected him like Capernaum had and got to the point where he would no longer teach them didactically. So he goes back to the synagogue and began teaching them there. Teaching what? Well, he has—he wasn't teaching geography, algebra, or American history. I'll let you know that. He wasn't teaching any of those things. He was teaching the true nature of Moses' law, or better said, the law of God. Well, how do we know that? Well, the word itself, didasko, to instruct according to true and false, according to right and wrong. That's what the word means. This isn't picture studies. This is what does God's law actually teach us. In later Judaism, teaching signifies instruction in the law for the right ordering of relation to God and neighbor. That's what it is. That's, what, that's this word, didasko. God and neighbor love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is likened to it: love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he, that's what he's teaching. That's what the word demands. Jesus quotes Isaiah twenty-nine, thirteen, in Matthew five, nineteen, saying that the people are teaching didasco, as doctrine, Didascalia, the commandments of men instead of the commandments of God. That you've got your traditions that you're teaching instead of what God's word really teaches. Prior to the resurrection of Christ, it was almost always used for moral instruction and application of the law. It also, it's also important to, telling to note that Didasco is absent from the entire parabolic discourse. You'll notice if you look back, you're on the page. 13.3, he spoke many things to them in parables. He didn't teach many things in parables, he spoke. Different word is used. Saying, behold, the sower went out to sow. And then in Matthew 3.10, the disciples said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? It's not Didasco." And where is Jesus teaching? Well, in the synagogues. What did they discuss and debate in the synagogue? Listen to this quote from Lightfoot: A Synagogue was formed only where there were ten learned men, professedly students of the law. Wherever there was ten of Israel, there a house must be built. And this house is called a synagogue. Not that any ten of Israel made a synagogue, but wherever were ten learned men and studious of the law, these were called men of leisure, who were not called that because they were lazy or idle persons, but such who were not encumbered with worldly things and were thus at leisure only to take care of the affairs of the synagogue and to give themselves to the study of the law." So he's going to these people that fancy themselves expert of the law according to the tradition of the elders. And he's going in there and he's teaching them, much like he did on the Sermon on the Mount, correcting all of their misunderstandings. Now one thing is conspicuously absent from Jesus' visit to this Nazareth synagogue. In Matthew 4, 23 through 24, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. Well, that's what it says in Matthew 4, 23. It was his pattern. In four nine, it's repeated. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. There's already a reason for jealousy because he had went to Capernaum for a year, but now his patterns to go in, teach, proclaim, and heal. But here he goes into the synagogue, and he teaches. We don't hear anything about any healings, do we? It's not mentioned at all. They're not getting the full treatment, so to speak. So instead of hearty agreement, we get a challenge. They begin to find fault with him. Look at this challenge from the Nazarenes, starting in 54, the last part of the verse. So they were astonished or amazed and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? The word for astonished is the same one that we re- read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty eight. 28. Ec the people were beside themselves. They were overwhelmed. They were panicked. This is We think of it as a good word when we hear they were amazed, but it's, it's not. It's, "it it pleso means we're astonished to be struck out of oneself. And it was used figuratively of being struck in the mind so that being beside yourself, perplexed, upset. Jesus, a carpenter, is a skilled, gifted teacher of the law. This tradesman is filled with divine wisdom. The undeniable wisdom that they can hear for themselves Is there, and the miracles are a matter of report. They've heard about them. That's famous all over Syria, all the other places, and it's gotten back to them. But they don't deny the validity of the reports. They believe he actually does have these miraculous powers. Everything in them insists that they admire him because what he teaches is obviously true. But they refuse. You know you can know something's true, but because you hate God so much you can suppress the truth in your own unrighteousness. We've got that beginning to take place here. They instead, they enact all the skepticism that they can muster and they question Jesus' qualifications and the origin of his miracles. Let's first begin with the questioning of his qualifications for ministry. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Before I move on, let's squash another ridiculous alleged contradiction here. Skeptics like to throw out and say the Bible contradicts itself, don't they? They like to throw it out all the time. Mark 6.3 says that they said, Is this not the carpenter instead of the carpenter's son? (gasps) And then Luke 4.22 mentions Joseph by name. And it doesn't even mention the other family members. Well, make up your mind, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Get your story straight. I can't believe you. Obviously, this is just... I mean, it contradicts itself, doesn't it? Well, what if instead of going there, we we use our brains for a minute? Because God gave them to us for a reason, didn't he? Was this a quote from one person? No. They were astonished and they said, right... Now, when it says that they said this, does it mean that they all stood aloud and in unison recited what they said together? Like, I pledge allegiance to the. F-, you know, like that, like we would do that. Is that what they did? No, of course not. Or does it mean to tell us that the kinds of skeptical things that were being said by people that they started, that all started a little buzz, and one of them would say, hey, we know his dad. He is a. He's a carpenter's son. He said, yeah, his dad, I remember him. He's Joseph. You might not know his name, but I knew him before he died. His name's Joseph. And somebody said, not only is Joseph a carpenter, but Jesus took over the family business. Jesus is a carpenter too. And hey, Mary, we know his mom, people are saying all this stuff. And each of these gospel writers is summing it up. You see how useful our brains can be if we just use them? Instead of just trying to be skeptics and find fault, if we think, what is, what's going on here? Journalism says actually differences in narratives told between two different people show that they've not colluded to get their story straight and that that maintains the kernel that this is actually true. This is basically what happened. In God's Word, we know this is exactly what happened. All right, though. We've moved on from answering that ridiculous objection. And let's look at these uh, these challenges of the qualifications one by one. Is this not the carpenter's son... People didn't know the theological truth behind Jesus' miraculous birth. We have extra knowledge because it tells us that God is the actual Father, right? Well, they don't recognize. They don't know Matthew 1, 18 through 25. To them, Jesus was merely Joseph's son. They didn't know and couldn't have even understood the whole son of God in flesh thing, right? They They couldn't have really gotten that. So Jesus had been a... It's a tecton. That means a carpenter. It would have been a general term for a craftsman who worked with hard materials which would have included wood or bricks or stonework. So to those in Nazareth, Jesus was a mere common skilled laborer's son and a mere common skilled laborer himself. They found it impossible to accept the fact that he could be a great human teacher when he's spending his days not in study but you know, putting wood together. You know, sawing stuff, laying block, and not only is he a carpenter's son, he his ordinary, familiar mothers and fathers and mothers and brothers is not. His mother, called Mary, and his brothers, James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas. The point here is the same. We know all about Jesus. We know him, and we know his people. And they hold to a tradition that was unscriptural, but commonly believed at that time. John 7, 27 gives us a picture of what they believed about the Messiah. And it, once again, like a lot of their beliefs, it didn't come from the Old Testament. But they started saying... John seven twenty seven. We know where this man, Jesus, is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one will know where he's from. Is that, is that in the Old Testament anywhere? No, actually it tells us a whole lot about where he would be from if you read the Old Testament rightly. But they had this, they had this tradition that clouded their judgment to make them reject Jesus. We know where this guy's from. This is his mom. These are his kids. I mean, his brothers, the other, the, the other and sisters, his, his resident sisters as well. His sisters, are they not all with him? The the mention of sisters are with us is likely because Jesus' mother and brothers have recently been living down in Capernaum. We learned that in 1246 through 50. And it may seem to even... uh, It seems that they've moved down there and they've made residence in Capernaum for the last year as well. But the sisters likely married men in Nazareth, so they never moved away. They stayed with their husbands like they should, right? So regardless, the point here is the same as with the other accusations that are veiled as questions. It's like, we know his sisters and there ain't anything special about them women. So what makes Jesus so special? The implication of this list of family details is that a man whose local pedigree is so well known, he can hardly be thought of as someone who's extraordinary. John 6, 42. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? How can he say that I came down out of heaven? And the village carpenter is hardly the person to pose as a distinguished teacher if he hadn't received any formal training, John 7:15. How does this man know, even know his letters when he's not even been taught, he's not been to a rabbinical school? We must refuse to be unduly impressed with academic degrees. Amen. This is this quote from Andrew Sandlin, a friend of mine. He's a a doctor. uh, uh, He's got his doctorate in in theology. But He says, In his late teens, as an aspiring scholar, his father introduced him to a dear friend, the late Tom Malone, uh, president of Midwestern Baptist College and a holder of several degrees. And Sandlin's dad mentioned his interest in those degrees. And this was Malone's gentle rebuke. In his southern accent with a twinkle in his eye. You know he's smart. He had a southern accent. That southern accent and a twinkle in his eye. He said, degrees are like curls on a pig's tail. They look really cute, but they don't give you any more pig. Isn't that right? We've got to realize that. Understanding that our Lord was an uncredentialed carpenter should help us. We don't need that. Truth is truth regardless of the source. Isn't it? But... Having attacked Jesus' qualifications, they now question the origin of Jesus' wisdom and miraculous powers starting in 54c. They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? And again in 56, the second part of the verse, and where did this man get all these things? They take note of Jesus' wisdom and of his reputation for miraculous powers. We'll start with wisdom. They can't help but acknowledge the wisdom that Jesus had, and they want to know where this simple man is getting all this wisdom. If they knew their Bibles apart from their tradition of the elders, then they would know the answer. Where does a simple man get wisdom? Anybody here know? Psalm 19:7 The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Jesus didn't look to the tradition of the elders for his wisdom. He went straight to sola scriptura, God's word alone. And he found the errors in all the tradition. And he, was, he excelled above all the rabbis because he looked to the scriptures. Psalm 119, 97-28. Oh, how I love your law. It is um, my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. For your commandments are ever mine. Of course Jesus was astounding them with his wisdom. Jesus has rejected the damnable tradition of the elders. Matthew 5.20, I say to you, except your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't even see the kingdom or enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's calling them to the straight paths of the law as presented through the Sermon on the the Mount. That's the ministry and emphasis of the Messiah. Isaiah 42, 21, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and again restore it and make it honorable. So miracles were only meant to verify and adorn the message. They'd have been wise to have listened to what Jesus was teaching and obeyed him instead of trying to find fault and demand miracles. Matthew 7, 24-29, through, 24 through 29, remember this, everyone who hears these words of mine and, and acts on them, he will be compared to a wise man who has built his house on the rock and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall thereof. And when Jesus had finished these words, the crowd were the crowds were, at plesso. They were amazed. It's, they didn't like it. It's a different than the tradition of the elders. It's not what they're used to. They, it's correcting that. They're struck with terror because what God requires is higher. It's even higher and more holy than what the scribes and Pharisees have been demanding, the tradition of the elders demanded. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not like the scribes who drew off of the authority of others. The wisdom that Jesus demonstrated in his teaching, it impressed them. He was wise beyond the possibility of a mere village sage, and they recognize this. Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus had said, only that he impressed the hearers with the result, and they were astonished. But from Luke's account, this started out positive, but it turned south. It got sour pretty quick. So look over. I said to be turning to Luke 4. Turn to Luke 4, 17 through 22, so we can get a fuller picture of what's actually going on here. in Luke 4:17 the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus and he opened the book and he found the place where it was written quoting from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And He closed the book and He gave it back to the attendant and He sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon Him. And He began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So He gives a great discourse on the law and at the end of it, he gets Isaiah's scroll, reads it aloud standing up and sits down and says, it has been fulfilled. Now, this seems to be where everything started going south. Not a single miraculous work has been mentioned as having been performed. Not one. Yet Jesus says that through his teaching, this prophecy from Isaiah, which includes proclaiming the recovery of sight to the blind, which in Isaiah is a reference to the servant of Israel, Israel's servant, who is as blind as my servant Israel... Correcting their interpretation and giving the right interpretation of the law. That's actually what it says in Isaiah 42, 19-21. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not. Opening the ears, but he hears not. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Jesus says, saying, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, I'm not literally going to have to open the eyes of literal blind man. I'm opening the metaphorical eyes of all you people who have twisted the law and made it dishonorable. I'm correcting your misinterpretation. Today, this scripture has been already fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at his gracious words which were falling from his lips. But then they start finding fault and they start saying, Is this not Joseph's son? They start finding, where does he get his credentials? And it starts catching on. Did you know that if you say something negative... I'm going to warn you about this. Say something negative to people and you put a negative seed in in their mind and then they start saying negative. It happens in churches all the time. Somebody has something negative to say. They whisper it to somebody else. And then before long, everybody in the church is whispering something negative. It happened in this synagogue. Guys, don't do that. It's called stirring up discord can't do that. But they, they started doing it here. And then we turn to the miraculous powers. Look, look. Luke's narrative immediately takes us from this, where he, where he gives us Luke 4, 17 through 22, saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And where does Jesus take us next? Look at Luke 4, 23 through 27. And Jesus said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Do you see what's going on? They're jealous. We heard about all the miraculous powers you displayed in your new home city. you, You did that in Capernaum. They're not even really your hometown village people. That's not... And you did all that. Do the same, the same thing here in your real hometown amongst us who are truly your people. But Jesus refused to cater to them. Look what he says in verse 24. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the widows in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile woman. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. These people did the will of God. They were true family, and the people of Israel, they weren't. I don't have to do this for you because you're people of my hometown. Man, that's strong leadership, isn't it? You say, well, Jesus sounds like a jerk. Guys, we've got a wrong definition of a jerk you got people, hey, give me a position of authority in the church. And then weak, limp-wristed pastors say, oh, he'll get offended if I don't. And we appoint people to positions of authority that they don't have any business being there. To keep them interested and engaged. Jesus says no. It's like, hey, when my kids, they want some candy and they ask for candy and I say no. If they pitch a fit, guess what they sure ain't getting... And if I say no and they pitch a fit and I give it to them, what have I trained them to do? Pitch a fit every time they want something. Right? That's a weak person. Jesus is smart enough not to give them what they're asking for. First, Jesus exposes their real motive. He knew they wanted him to duplicate in in Nazareth the miracles that had been performed in Capernaum. And he knew that if he complied with their demand, they still wouldn't accept him as Messiah because no prophet is welcome in his hometown. In further rebuke of their hypocrisy and faithfulness, he reminded them of the days of Elijah that God shut up the rain in Israel for three and a half years and caused a great famine during the time the Lord showed mercy on none of the many suffering widows in Israel but show great mercy on that Gentile widow. He also reminded them of the Elisha story and then he exposes their jealousy for what it is. What's the point? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, 12, 48 through 50. Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. They could not have missed Jesus' powerful rebuking point that a believing Gentile is dearer to God than an unbelieving Jew. Man, they didn't like that. Neither Jesus nor his disciples are obligated to a person based off of proximity or or history. We've got history together. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. It's who will hear God's word. That's who I should spend my time with. That's who I'm responsible to God for. That's who the, the message of the kingdom, the secrets of the kingdom that I understand, what I'm putting together, I can build it into this person that's receptive and I need to maximize my life and I'm responsible to God as a householder for that person. Not for the person I've got history with or the person that looks the most like me. That's not what it's about. They didn't like that. And that's an understatement. Somewhere in this increasingly embittered exchange, the Nazarenes became increasingly brazen with their accusations. Oh, you're not coming to God's people, the Israelites? Then where did you even get these, this wisdom and powers? He's the helper of Israel. And you're, you're coming, and I'm sure you're doing amazing things, but you're saying some crazy stuff about Gentile people who we know are unclean and dogs how the Israelites of that time, the Jews understood the Gentile people. They're implying that the Pharisees in Capernaum they're implying now what the Pharisees in Capernaum came right out and said. Remember in Matthew 12, 24 but when the Pharisees heard this they said this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They're saying how do we even know you're getting your power from the good side instead of from the bad side? Just like the wicked city Capernaum, Horazin and Bethsaida, all the cities of Israel are rejecting Jesus' ministry because he's not the kind of Messiah they wanted. He's not what they wanted. This question was of great importance for them. Did these things come from God or were they of human or even demonic origin? We're going to pick up in Luke's narrative in a few minutes, but right now I want to focus on what we learned just from Matthew. Look at this conflict now with his own people. What do we see here in verse 57? They took offense at him. The word is scandalizo in altoir. The basic idea is causing someone to stumble or trip, that he's became a stumbling block to them. It's a term from which we get the English word scandalize or scandal, right? They were scandalized by Jesus. Jesus' friends and former neighbors were offended by his claims. They were offended by his ordinary background, by the commonness of his family, by the limits of his formal training, by his lack of official religious status, and by his refusal to do miracles on demand. Everything about Jesus, it added up. It built up. And they took offense. You want to know the sad truth? Every time in the New Testament somebody's scandalized by someone, that someone is Jesus. It's the only person it's used about. Jesus becomes the stumbling block. He's the rock of offense. He comes to his own people and his own people receive him not. The stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. It's tragic that small issues can be used as great excuses for not believing. Something being true isn't enough for sinful men. The Nazarenes wanted to see miracles and they wanted to be made much of. You've got a lot of people that want Christianity so that they can be made to feel special. You're enough. Guys, I see that I see preachers saying, You are enough. You are not enough. Listen to this preacher. You're not enough. If you trust in your enoughness, you're in big trouble. Christ entered in to pay for where you're not enough because He's enough and He loves you despite the fact that you're not good enough. They wanted to be made much of. We're your people. We should be special to you. Do these miracles for us. We want all of our felt needs met. That was the desire of the Nazarenes. And because of those unmet desires, they rejected a Savior that offered them life and immortality, but on His terms, not theirs. Jesus will save you on His terms, not yours. You don't get to tell Him what He has to do to earn your devotion. He tells you what you must do to be saved by His grace. And that is recognize your great need, repent of your sins, and trust in Him alone for your salvation. That's it. The people of Nazareth were like people throughout the history of the church who can find every foolish reason in the world to justify their rejection of the gospel. They don't like the attitude of the person that witnessed to them. Or they think the church is full of hypocrites. Or they think the preacher's too loud, or the preacher's too soft, or the service is too stuffy, or it's too overbearing, or that the services are too formal, or informal, or too long, or too short. To something, to anything they can find. People who don't want to believe, they don't really have to have a valid reason. Your dad's a carpenter. You ain't educated enough. You're too educated. That one actually happens down here. I know your brothers and sisters. You're ugly and your mama dresses you funny. They don't need a good reason. And it can get real bad real quick. In Luke's account, we see just exactly how bad. When Jesus showed that he understood their wicked motives and would not bend to their demands to have their own display of miracles. Look, look how bad it got in Luke 4, 28 through 30 And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They were, one, they were in awe at the wonderful words that were falling from his mouth and speaking well of him just a minute ago. And now he tells them, I'm not obligated to do miracles for you just because you're my own hometown people. And it went from speaking well of and being in awe at the wonderful words falling from his mouth to being filled with rage when they heard these things. And they got up. It wasn't just filled with rage. They got up and they drove him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Indifference to Jesus escalates to hostility toward Jesus quickly, doesn't it? Oh, be careful with your hearts. You start rejecting a little and it's not long before you're rejecting a lot. Be careful with your hearts. It escalates so, so quickly. But passing through their midst, it wasn't Jesus' time yet to die. Verse 30, passing through their midst, he simply went his way. When your sin is exposed, you can either get mad, defend yourself, and attack the messenger, leading to eternal damnation. That's one option. Get mad. Somebody comes to you with sin they think that's in your life. And what do you do? Rebuke a scorner and he'll hate you. You get mad... You defend yourself. You attack them. I'll tell you what that looks like. It looks like, I know you are, but what am I? I hear Christians I hear Christians do it from time to time. Somebody comes to them with concern for sin. Oh, yeah, well, what about you? You do this and this and this. Attack the messenger. That progression leads to eternal damnation. Or you can confess your sins, repent, and receive mercy that leads to eternal life. In their attempt to kill Jesus, their evil character and unbelief became apparent. They wanted entertainment from Jesus and benefit for themselves from the miracle worker, not conviction of sin and a message of salvation by Jesus the Messiah. They didn't want that. Like those in Capernaum, the people of Jesus' hometown synagogue refused to make the logical and obvious connection between His power and His divinity because they were willfully unbelieving. Matthew 11:23 through 24. You Capernaum, you won't be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll descend into hell. For if the miracles that had occurred in Sodom occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus dusted his feet from that Jewish city because the Gentiles were more godly than they had proven to be, and Jesus left Capernaum never to return. Nazareth would be next. They too had showed that they were not part of God's household and that they would be uprooted like terrors and burned in 70 A.D. That's what's coming for them. That was what was coming for all of the Jewish cities, that there would be a remnant that would be saved by faith, but that the majority of all of these Jewish cities would be burned and judged. And it happened just as Jesus predicted. And what's the conclusion? How does all this end? Well, we get a proverbial truth on display, don't we? 57, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. It borrows from the language in the previous parable, doesn't it? It borrows from the last narrative in the end of chapter 12. We see this proverb, though, in every gospel. Mark six four, Luke four, twenty four, even John four, not the synoptic, we see this parable, a prophet's not without honor, except in his own hometown and in his own household. Notice in Matthew thirteen, fifty two, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things old I mean, things new and things old. Heads of household can easily teach those that are under their headship. But it's so difficult for those in a household to teach those that are over them. you notice that? Guys, When especially... Hey, I, I, I tag this as often as I can. You've got little kids. Maximize this time. They look to you and they think you're way more impressive than you really are. Automatically. I, I, know, I know when little kids, when they're little and silly, they think my daddy can whoop anybody in the country. Don't they? Just automatically. My daddy's so smart. I don't care if you're Forrest Gump IQ. They think you are brilliant. You can throw a basketball through a Fisher Price hoop. And they're like, oh wow, my daddy. When you're teaching those under you, they listen. When you try to teach the other way. Have you ever noticed? Try to teach. Even as you age and get older, try to teach your parents. It's usually really hard, isn't it? They don't want to hear. It's, God's not designed it. He's designed instruction to flow down, not to go up. And there's a natural resistance that's there. Automatically. Also, once again, maximize the time because as the little kids become teenagers and then men, you've, they get harder to reach, don't they? You've got to form it while they're small, while they're young. But my point here. A prophet is not without honor except in his home and in his own household. The Jews of of Jesus' day saw God as the father of Judaism as their religion and they saw the Messiah as one born under Judaism. That's how they saw it. So the Messiah would be one who was born into the house of Israel. So he's in the house, not over it. you see the problem? They... Their understanding of the Messiah is not that the Messiah will come and he will be over all of Israel, not, not to the right hand of the throne of God kind of over, but he will be one of in the house. Matthew 1.1 begins with the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And that is absolutely true. But notice the problem that we find with the Jews' understanding of this. They didn't think that Jesus was over David or over Abraham. Listen in, in Matthew twenty two forty one 41 through 45. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the Spirit call the Messiah Lord? They, they, they can't understand that. And... They said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, then how is he his son? They saw Jesus as under David, not over David. The son had to become Lord over all. He had to purchase the whole field. He had to own the whole world. He had to be exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. He had to become, be declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. All this had to happen for it to work. Same thing with Abraham in John 8, 56-59. Your father Abraham, Jesus tells them, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born... I am. I'm God. I'm pre-existent. I didn't just start existing when I was born or when I was conceived. I existed prior to that because I'm God in the flesh. And therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus himself went out of the temple. They saw Jesus as under Abraham, not over Abraham. The son had to become Lord. They couldn't handle the Messiah who was over the house of David and greater than Abraham. Matthew nine sixteen through 17 we've already covered. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Old Judaism, you can't put a new Jesus on an old Judaism. For the patch will pull away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine in old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskin bursts and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine in fresh wineskins and both are reserved. Jesus was going to have to purchase the whole field and establish something completely New. Matthew 12. 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He said, An evil and adulterous generation claims craves a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's once again saying this is bigger than Israel. The Ninevites, Gentile people, they listened to Jonah. Something greater than Jonah's here. But to make sure that the whole world listens, I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to purchase the whole world by my sacrifice. I'm going to raise from the dead and be exalted to the right hand of the throne of God, gaining universal authority over everything. And he pulled it off too. That's why we're here 2,000 years later. Without a risen Savior, the Christian faith makes no sense. When we understand what this parable on display means, it's easy to understand why the miracle, miraculous powers, were not on display. The second part is he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. But I want you to notice this: there's a little bit of grace here, isn't there? He didn't do. There's an ilm in front of the "a and y," isn't there? It doesn't say he didn't do any miracles. In His grace, He he felt no obligation toward them because they weren't His people. They were His national people. They were His hometown, but they didn't hear and obey as a city. But in His compassion, even though He had no obligation, He still loved and He still helped. A householder is responsible to provide for those of his own household. That's why we get to Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity, this is to us as the church, let us do good to all people, especially of those of the household of faith. We have an obligation toward our fellow Christians, but guys, compassion should move us to still love and care about those who reject the faith and hate us. We still should love our enemies and do good to those that despitefully use us and and persecute us. But we must for the church. We must for the people of God. Nazareth has proven not to be those people. So Jesus is not providing for them because of their unbelief. He will leave and shake the metaphorical dust from his feet because although they were Jews, they were not of his household. Jesus warned, Do not give that which is holy to the dogs, and do not cast your pearls before the swine, lest they trample them under feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. Matthew 7, 6. More allusions to them being covenantally unclean. Right? Dogs and pigs. If people won't listen, even if they're Jews, he says that they're dogs and pigs, unclean animals, and that we shouldn't give them the treasures because they're not part of that household. Same thing. Far from giving them more, we return back to what he says in the parabolic discourse. Matthew 13, 12 through 15. Whoever has, to him more shall be given. We should look to people who have a love of God's Word and we should build there. We should prioritize relationships with people who love God's Word and build there. Share the gospel with others and if they show interest, build there. But if they don't, we recognize we're wasting our time at some point. If God's not at work, all the work you do in the world's not going to do anything if God's not working on the other end. Psalm 127, our church quotes the second part of this a lot. Children are heritage of the Lord. But the beginning of it, what does it say? Except the Lord build a house. They labor in vain to build it. To him that has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he does have shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts in return, and I would heal them. Make sure that you learn from our Lord here and that you don't put our Lord to the test. You learn from this experience here and you don't put our Lord to the test. These people put the Lord to the test, didn't they? Do this and we will believe. Of course, they never would have. But that's that's the heart of somebody that's putting God to the test. You start down that. God, I want you to do this, and if you do this, then I'll follow you. He's under no obligation to woo you. You believe him despite the things that, uh, despite the fact that things are not as you would have them to be, and you follow anyway and watch him wow you because he's good to his covenant people. But you don't make it a requirement for your devotion. They did. And it led to their ruin and their rejection. It is in Christ's pattern to give you over to your excuse-making, reprobate mind. Be diligent to recognize your rebellious heart when it starts to rise up within you. Put down the rebellion. Cleave to what you know to be good. And where you failed, trust in a Savior who's compassionate. You say, yeah, I've came up short. God's given you that knowledge. You've given up short and hold to Christ's completed work. We can have many, many failures. He opens your eyes and He receives you back. If you're here today and you're like, Hey, I've been putting Him to test. I've been drawing back because of circumstances in my life because Jesus isn't uh, g hauling just right for me. God's not making everything go the way I want it to. So I've been not giving Him my full devotion. And I recognize it. Just repent. Don't live in condemnation. Just repent and say, Jesus is enough. To forgive and to change me, He's graciously drawn me back to Himself. Kind of gracious, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this uh, this narrative. Lord, we thank you for what we learn from it, the warning that it carries with it, and the promise of Your faithfulness to Your to Your people, to Your household. Lord, everyone's not part of your household, but those that are you look at us with this responsibility to take care of us. That you And, and you are an almighty, powerful, good God. If you feel it's your responsibility, we know we will be not just well taken care of, but perfectly. Lord, help us run to you, trust you, cleave to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.